Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. Movies by Michael Madsen. Remember when all the men on the ship said goodnight to Mr. Roberts? Or when Shane rode off over the mountain? Kirk Douglas trying for the note on the trumpet. James Cagney screaming on the top of the tower. Bob Mitchum going after those kids and Humphrey Bogart pulling off leeches. Marlon Brando finding the dead pigeons on his roof. Gloria Swanson walking down those stairs. And Bette Davis testing the weight of a rifle. Chuck Heston finding his mother and sister. And Charles Bronson getting shot in the Magnificent Seven. Bert Lancaster with his rose tattoo. And Bert Lancaster on Alcatraz. Kirk Douglas looking at his dead horse in the rain. Lee Marvin in the Twilight Zone. And Lee Marvin in Point Blank. Mr. Blonde dancing and... And Dennis Hopper with the gas mask. Steve McQueen laughing in the back seat of a Mercury. And Steve McQueen smiling at the engine. Tim Roth as the only interesting monkey. And Harry Dean walking and making Paris, Texas. Watching Paul Newman eating those eggs. And Paul Newman telling George C. Scott that he wasn't getting any more money. Carl Malden telling Marlon he was going to hang. And Carl Malden telling Blanche and lighting the bent cigarette on the waterfront. Jack playing the piano. Jimmy Stewart loving Donna Reed. And Jimmy Stewart doing just about anything. Fonda in the Dust Bowl. Fonda Jr. on the motorcycle. Lon Chaney with a thousand faces. And Lon Chaney Jr. running around with Frankenstein and creature features on TV in Everston. We're all on the run. From the richest Maharaja, the big, the wrong, the last, the found, the forgotten, the remembered, the free, and all the long-timers, all on the run, one way or another. Yesterday, I was the answer to 46 down in a crossword puzzle in the L.A. Times. And that was a very different take on looking at movies. You might say from the inside looking out, the poem Movies, written by actor Michael Madsen and read by Tom O'Bedlam from Spoken Verse. And we'll be taking a further look later in the show at the emerging theme of the U.S. family, politically speaking. Is the fabric of that family increasingly torn, metaphorically, between red and blue? But now... In the White House, the mighty White House, the liar tweets tonight. In the West Wing, the self-obsessed wing, the liar tweets Doctors, hush reporters, hush you science nerds. Look, my ratings are through the roof when I just say happy words. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. Our guest Roy Zimmerman has been described as Lenny Bruce meets Stephen Sondheim meets Phil Oaks in Brian Wilson's living room. Roy is a master of satirical political songwriting as well as a damn fine musician. I've been listening and laughing at his sharp wit for years, and I'm very happy to have him on the show today. Hi, Roy. Hi there, Jack. Thank you for having me. And you're not sitting in Brian Wilson's living room today, unfortunately. No, no sand on my feet. But I think we'll do well. You not only write your own melodies, but you also do song parodies. And your song about the Donald, The Liar Tweets Tonight, has something like, I don't know, 11 million views on YouTube so far. I mean, did you 
ever expect this, that you would become the Adele of satire? <laughs> Is that what I am? Oh my! <laughs> it was an amazing, amazing occurrence over the over the course of the campaign season that uh, my wife Melanie Harvey and I came up with that parody and put the the video out there. And you know, we did four different iterations of the liar tweets tonight because it became so popular. I think part of the reason for its popularity. A, you know, people love to hate that guy. That's one thing. B, people love that song. They want to sing along. Yeah, yeah. So all together, all four of these videos uh, have amassed about 120 million views over all of social media. Uh, you know, it sounds like a lot until you realize that, you know, Fat Boy Falls Off Truck has 130 million. I don't know. Anyway, but yes, it, it, it's, it was an amazing success. And, and it's certainly uh, the thing that uh, we have done together that has reached the most people. Yeah. Before COVID hit, you spent years touring to every single state in the country, which is pretty remarkable. I don't think there are too many Americans who can claim that they've done that. What did you find? What stood out for you? Well, it became our modus operandi just to, to do loops around the country, absolutely. And we were always looking for the most progressive people every place we went, but that, of course, included all the least progressive places in the country. And we were heartened to find that they're there, first of uh -huh. all. They're, they're great groups uh, we call blue dot groups across America doing wonderful progressive work where you might least expect it or where, where it might be the most difficult. Is there some secret place to find them? Where's the first place you go? Well, a lot of <laughs> a lot of the shows that I did were at Unitarian churches. You know, uh -huh. a lot of these blue dot people, you know, huddled in the basement with their arms linked. Uh, in some cases, they're in um, Democratic Party groups, certainly union halls and indivisible groups that have sprung up since the Trump era and and all too. How many socialists we got out there today? Come on, let's see a show of left hand. How did you get into songwriting? It kind of drafted me, I would say. In junior high, I just began writing songs. It, it, it was a natural thing for me to do to respond to what was happening. So all the songs that I was writing were, were about what was happening around me. And it wasn't long then before I drifted into political waters. What, what kind of household did you grow up in? I grew up in a conservative household, uh, very much so. Uh, I would love to have any of your listeners explain to me how I turned out to be like I am. <laughs> right, I still right. don't understand that, but I am happily who I am, that's for sure. And I'm doing the work that I think I was intended to do. But somehow in junior high school, you, you gave yourself permission to, to write these satirical songs. Yeah, well, Tom Lehrer was a big influence, too. Mm, sure. Um, you know, I, I was discovering Tom Lehrer about a decade, almost a decade after he was putting these records out and writing and, and so forth, too. So it was kind of contraband is what it was. You know, that's what, that was ah, the, the big attraction ah, ah. of it. It was, that was something I had to sneak. You know, so sneaking satirical songs became, a, a, you know, a, a secret high for me. For those of uh, our listeners who don't remember Tom Lehrer or were born too late, although you can probably find him on YouTube, he was the author of such hits as uh, Poisoning Pigeons in the Park, <laughs> uh, The Vatican Rag. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. Did you ever meet Tom Lehrer? Yeah. Yeah. I got to sit down with him in his living room one afternoon while I was touring years ago. Uh, he's very approachable and a great person to talk to about not just songwriting and all that, but things in general. Well, you know, after listening to a selection of your songs, it certainly becomes evident that not only are you uh, an ingenious songwriter, but you're also uh, a master of musical genres from folk to pop to Broadway to the Beatles to gospel uh, to doo-wop. How did you get your musical education? 
Well, thanks for noticing that, first of all, because, because the attempt is always to, to find the musical style that best suits the satirical purpose of the song. So that's part of the fun of it is copying the kind of copying the production chops and so forth that, that make that song more effective satirically. You know, um, I do have a, a, a um, degree in music composition and oh. um, and my wife, Melanie, and, and, and I've been writing these songs for a, for a long, long time, you know, so so we have a good deal of fun just coming up with what is the feel? What is the what, a, what kind of a song are we after? But they all want marriage to be like it was in the good book. Sarah had a marriage, but she could not bear him. A kid. So Sarah gave Abraham a slave girl, and pretty soon they did it, and she did, Lord, Lord. Yeah, pretty soon they did it, and they did it, and they did it, and they did it, did it, did it, and she did. Now I know slavery was banned, but a woman should be free. To give a slave girl to her husband. I want to marry all the married like they had in the Bible, like they had in the Bible, like they had in the Bible. I want to marry like they had in the Bible because the Bible, because the Bible tells me so. When you got that degree in musical composition, was it with the intention of writing these kinds of songs? I knew I wanted to write songs. In fact, I was already writing songs. You know, I, I wanted to write theater songs, which is kind of what these are. You know, there's a character yeah. behind each, each song, really. And if you do satire well, which you, you're never speaking from your own point of view. You're speaking from the point of view of somebody who you disagree with, <laughs> um, which is the trouble in listening to it sometimes. You want to you get behind the character of the song, and th- there, then the satirical point becomes more obvious. Yes. Roy, Roy Zimmerman has a conservative girlfriend. For instance. <laughs> For instance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mark, Having a spotted owl on the whites only. Come on, baby, raise my interest rate. Bust my union, light my library fire. She only deals in quality narcotics and got got a Mexican wallet made from real Mexican That's interesting that you talk about it being a theatrical form in some sense, because I really get the impression that even more than the folk scene, that you were studying the great American songbook like E.Y. Harburg and uh, Lorenz Hart. I love those songs. I mean, those songs are so amazingly well-constructed. They're so, they're unafraid to be clever. And they all have a point of view as well. Even the, just the flat-out love songs have a, are placed in a certain place with a certain character. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have a sense of how many songs you've written? I have a sense of it. Um, it's, you know, over a thousand. I, I, you know, I don't know. I, I stopped counting at some point. Too many to, to compile. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Is songwriting for you a discipline, a job that you do every day or every fixed time? Or do you wait uh, until inspiration hits? It comes in spates. There are fecund periods and uh, unfecund periods, I suppose you'd say. So, so, you know, there'll be a spate of three songs kind of forming themselves at once. 
and then a spate of uh, the other parts of this job that, that we have to do, you know, now, especially since COVID, and now that we're off the road, you would think there'd be more time, but it turns out that, that uh, the, the hustle never stops, right? And so you got you to keep doing the, the online shows, you got to keep putting the message out there on the social media, and, uh, and, and so there's, there's a lot of busyness involved in that. And you put together these videos. I imagine you must have invested quite a bit of time to put together these virtual sing-alongs. Also. That is that is so true. I mean, it's 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 amazing too. You know, you put the word out there for a virtual sing-in, and uh, well, in the in the last iteration of uh, Vote Him Away, for instance, we worked. Mm-hmm. How many people was it? 120 people or something into this video. These are people who send in video clips from all over the country, and in fact, all over the world. Uh, of themselves singing along with the chorus, and we, you know, we we take great joy in editing them into the video and making some sense out of what everybody has sent us. <laughs> you, you know what I was wondering? How do you get everybody to sing in the same key and the same rhythm, or is that tweaked in the audio? Uh, well, it's it's a little tweaked, but m- but mostly I just we we send out a um, a guide track. So if somebody writes us says, I'd like to be part of it, we write them back with a little guide track that's an MP3 that they can have their earbuds in or whatever and sing along with. So they're in the right key. They're in the right tempo already. Then when we mix them into the, the audio, they fit. I see. Can you write a song anywhere? When you're on the road, are you able to write songs? Yeah, definitely. You know, definitely. You have to have a, I mean, I, my, my suggestion for any songwriter uh, listeners of yours would be, you know, mm-hmm. if you don't do this already, have a way to codify the, your ideas whenever they come to you. Because, uh, you know, inspiration is fickle. And uh, I can't tell you how many times I've start, I've been humming a song to myself and thinking, oh, this is great, this is great. And then something, you know, you, you get home and you have to make lunch or whatever. And by the time you're done with lunch, you've forgotten the idea. So have a way to write it down, have a way to record it or something so that you can go back to and go like, what was that? Oh, yeah, it was great. You've been on the road so long. I'm always curious about this with musicians. What kind of family challenges are there when you're on the road so long? Well, on the road, it's it's very difficult because you never see your family. You know, it's uh-huh. a, except Melanie and I see uh, each other. We used to, we, we used to say we were like in a space capsule or something. We were like in the lunar module or something. We, it's expansive because <laughs> you're looking out at America, and you love that. I mean, you know, the, the America is, a, is a, a gorgeous place. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. But I'm, I'm, you know, we've been loving being home even during, you know, uh, pandemic yeah. times and, uh, you know, and the, the misfortune that that's brought to so many people. But we, you know, we've been loving being closer to family. Ah, uh, yeah. How did you generally get around from place to place by car? Right? Yeah, we just drove our minivan around the country. We called ourselves the Satire Delivery Service. Like, you know, like... Uh, FedEx or UPF, FedUps is what we called ourselves. <laughs> FedUps, it's a good line, good <laughs> line. And that was the end of part one of our interview with singer-songwriter Roy Zimmerman, whose website can be found at RoyZimmerman.com. Tune in next week for part two of our interview with Roy, where he'll talk about more secrets of writing satirical songs, how he became a swamp creature, driving while black, and more great music from Roy. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller, and now we'll go out with a Roy Zimmerman song about healthcare. There's a prescription to make it all better Laid out in this letter from my HMO Dear Number 103-692-405-3887 Have you considered suicide? It's a health care plan you probably haven't tried Enclosed, please find a tab of cyanide For your perusal You're getting to an age where your potential need for medical attention, even intervention, isn't hypothetical. So do it quick and solve this nation's health care crisis by not getting sick. Die now. Bye-bye now before you get one hemorrhoid older. No longer a cost-effective policy holder Won't you help us file your folder?
in the shredder by being just a little bit deader. <laughs> Dear. Number 103-692-405-3887. Before you take another breath, consider the advantages of death. We've enclosed a lethal dose of crystal meth for your convenience. And when you're dead and buried, you'll be covered. You can quote us. And if you've killed yourself already, disregard this notice. <laughs> so, pretty please, remember, don't jerk, just squeeze and make it easier to write these policies for injuries who never sneeze, contract disease, get injuries, need EKGs, can't stomach cheese or get some wheezy little cough. It's up to you, 103692, knock yourself off. Signs your kindly HMO. And coming up next on Arts Express. There's a new face to communism, Edgar, and this isn't it. Communism is a foreign threat now, not domestic. Mr. Kennedy, before you were even born, I heard that very same argument from a Mr. Mitchell Palmer. Do you know what it took to change his mind? A bomb. Now, I, I do not want that to happen to you or your brother, sir. There's no reason we, we, we both can't get what we want. We can wage a war on two fronts, sir. You understand? You can go now, Mr. Hoover. Yes, sir. Please leave the transcripts here with me. Yes, sir. Oh, and feel free and share them with your brother. Oh, and let him know that I have a copy of my own in safekeeping. And that was actor Jeff Donovan, our guest today, portraying Robert Kennedy going toe-to-toe -to -toe with FBI's Hoover in Clint Eastwood's political drama, J. Edgar. And on another note in Donovan's impressive body of work, including as JFK in Rob Reiner's LBJ, is Let Him Go. With the political chaos and division in U.S. society currently in progress, is that red state versus blue state showdown increasingly making its way to the big screen, symbolically and otherwise. Apparently so, in particular, as manifested dramatically in the case of families and the criminal face-off among rural kin in the drama Let Him Go, starring Jeffrey Donovan as clearly a villain in the proceedings and a member of the ruthless backwoods Wee Boy tribe, with the family led by Kevin Costner in search of their young grandson living at risk with the Wee Boys. First, some scenes from Let Him Go, then Jeffrey Donovan. You're going with me, or without me. I saw exactly what I've always felt about Donnie Weeboy. And I saw that girl can't protect her child. Margaret Jimmy's her boy. He's your grandson. We're trying to locate a Donnie Weeboy. He married our son's widow. Got our grandson with him. You let it be known you're looking for a wee boy. I'll find you. We thought we'd see Jimmy, since we're in the neighborhood. Since you're in the neighborhood. Go careful. Where in the hell are we? We came to see our grandson. My boy doesn't have to answer to you. And we don't have to answer to you. Whoa. <laughs> Come with us. No. He'd kill me. Him and his mother. Your grandson. 
He's a wee boy now. You're with me on this, right? Right behind him. He hit Lorna. You hit your wife? Like... Start when she can't finish. Hi, Prairie. Hi, welcome to our show. Oh, well, thank you so much. Sure. Okay. What was it about this story and this film, Let Him Go, that drew you in? Well, the, the, the first was the cast. <laughs> As you can imagine, um, I got to share the screen with Kevin, Diane, and uh, Leslie Manville, and Tom Bazooka and I had a, uh, a Skype conversation about the role, and though the story was beautifully told and written, I, I couldn't imagine uh, not being able to play in this incredible um, scene with these legends. So so that's what, you know, attracted me. And then when, the more I worked on the role, which, by the way, I didn't have much time because of logistics for one reason or another, they called me Friday night to offer me the role, and I was shooting on Monday morning in Calgary. <laughs> mm. So I didn't have much time to get my running legs, but, um, you know, the more I read the script, I thought, what a what a beautiful tone to a movie and what a nuanced kind of character um, all of these, these people are. And that's, that's, you know, something that I hadn't done before. Uh, So I was, you know, I was very excited to to kind of go into the deep end with all of these incredible actors. Now the film was made before the divisive red versus blue state situation we see today. Do you see that as factoring in as a way this film may be received with its backwards suspicion and reaction to outsiders? You know, I I wouldn't hazard a guess that people will do that because I just I, I I've learned from twenty five years of making movies and TV. No matter what my intention, ultimately the reaction is not up to me. And so no matter what I do, whether I create a bad guy, someone might find good in him. If I create a good guy, people might say, God, what a bad guy you played. So I, I, I leave the interpretation of, uh, of the viewing experience up to the individual. So I'm not sure if people see into that as much as they do. But if they do and it creates a discussion, then that's good. But if it uh, creates more divisiveness, then obviously <laughs> we're, we're, we're somehow going to a, a different uh, down a different road, which I don't like. Now, what do you feel Let Him Go is attempting to convey to audiences about family ties and emotional fixations and obsessions? Because there are really two family members that they're not letting go. There's also that very wicked mother's son that she makes him come back to the family tribe and leave the city. So she doesn't want to let him go either. So what are your thoughts about all that? Yeah, isn't that an, a really interesting dynamic? Because mm. you you see the possessiveness actually be quite destructive, right? Mm, yeah. When when you watch the film, you you immediately think, well, Diane and Kevin are the good guys, and 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 Leslie and I are the bad people, and we're possessing this this uh, son, and now we're possessing the grandson, and and you know. But when you watch the film, you go, wait a minute, she's she's not letting go someone who also needs to be uh, released and free because she's holding on to the memory of her, her, of her dead son. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that it's just a, an examination um, of, of how dysfunctional, whether your intentions are good or not, co- arise from being so possessive and controlling over your family member. And all of it, uh, I believe, really stems from fear, a fear of letting them go. It's because you, you lose some sort of, your, uh, sort of yourself a part of you when you let someone go. And I know that's a corny saying, if you, you know, let someone go, if they never come back, they never were yours or something like that. 
you know, you have to release people that you love. Now, you were raised in a single-parent, economically struggling family on public assistance, and you worked as a bus driver to pay for college. How would you say that has informed who you are and as an actor? Uh, interesting question. I, I, I talk to my wife about this a lot because, you know, raising our children, um, my children are not struggling, as I did as a child. And the one thing that I think I held on to, uh, though I resented it at the time as a child, is not having much. You had to persevere. And that challenge, that, uh, that those obstacles of saying, I'll just not give up, creates a certain drive. And I think it helped me, especially when I first started out in New York and I was unemployed for years and no one was hiring me and I was uh, bartending just to make ends meet and things like that. That, that certainly, I said, it's going to all be worth it because I'm not going to give up. Um, so now in life, as a, as a father, I go, how do I, how do I pass that, that drive, that stamina, that perseverance on to my children? And it's a, it's, it's not an easy, it's not an easy answer. Um, and so I think it's, uh, it's, it's, it's an ongoing question is, I guess my point. Uh, prairies. It's, I'm still working on that. How it informed me because I'm. If it just dies with me, then it didn't really. I didn't really learn much from it. I'm trying to pass it on to my children. Mm. And you've also played real people as well: JFK and Rob Reiner's LBJ, and Robert Kennedy in Clint Eastwood's J. Edgar. What led you to go for those choices? Well, you know, um, growing up in Massachusetts, the Kennedys were like <laughs> the Crown. You know, it was it was like, you know, on TV, it was like watching Queen Elizabeth when, you know, uh, and, and, and King, um, uh, the kings and the queens and the princes. That was all what we saw on TV. It was, it was our royalty. And so you always imitated them because we all had kind of the Massachusetts accent, though the Kennedys had their own accent. And so it was it was a created one from homeschooling and and. But so I had to actually uh, get rid of my towny, poor towny accent to create uh, Jack and Bobby. Um, so it was a thrill. It was a thrill to play what was, you know, basically, you know, legends to us as, as children and, and royalty to us. And you're also coming out in Surrounded about the black soldiers in the Civil War known as Buffalo Soldiers. What attracted you to that production? I, I, I know you probably hear this a lot, but I've never seen a story like this. That's what it was. I've never seen a story like this. And, and I don't know how much they're talking about it right now, but, but it's, it's an incredible story. Uh, Letitia Wright is, is the lead actress, and she uh, plays a, a character who disguises herself as a man to survive in the time and she meets with such racism and hatred, and, and it's set against a, a brutal Colorado landscape uh, in the 18, late 1800s. And it's just an incredible story. And, I, um, and again, on an extraordinary cast that they, they, they put together. And I, I was just, I just wanted to, I've always wanted to do a Western. <laughs> I've always wanted to have a, a holster and a horse. And, and a hat, it was just, uh, you know, it's every kid's dream to be in a Western. So that was, you know, that was also part of it. And what are you filming right now up there? No, no, no. no I'm, I'm, I live in Colorado, actually. Oh, oh, I thought you were up there filming. No, no, no. I filmed the Western in New Mexico, which was really uh, uh, a, a special privilege that I could drive to work. Um, I didn't have to get on planes. I didn't have to go through kind of COVID quarantine like everyone did. You know, it was really a luxury for me, and I was very, very fortunate to, to in this very trying time, not only for the entertainment industry, but for every industry. No yeah. one, you know, going back to work. I was very blessed to get this. And speaking of Let Him Go and your other portrayals, would you say you're anything like the tough and often scary characters you play? <laughs> <laughs> you'll have to you'll have to ask my friends and, and my <laughs> wife. I'm I'm sure they'll attest. I'm 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 a bit of a pushover and a and a and a sap. Um, <laughs> I'm 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 not. Uh, my 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 children don't listen to me. I'm never 
I've never, they're not scared of me, which really kills me. Um, and, um, you know, I, I'm not the disciplinarian in the house. I'm the fun, I'm the fun pony ride basically mm-hmm. in the house. So, um, no, I'm, I, I'm not much like uh, any of the bad guys I play. Um, they're often uh, based on a lot of the people around me that I grew up with up in Massachusetts. Um, sadly, it's there. Um, growing up in Mass, there was a, just a lot of um, a lot of bullying, a lot of uh, uh, toughness, a lot of meanness, and mm. um, and you know the new, it's that kind of stereotypical New England uh, toughness. And uh, I, I kind of base a lot of my bad guys on on who I kind of grew up with, and said, "Geez, you know, I, one day I'm going to make you a character in a movie." Mm. And why do you feel that you're perceived as that person that you play in those roles? Well, hopefully, I'm, I'm perceived as a talented actor. One, right, Prairie? You know, oh, hopefully yeah. they go. You, yeah. you know, they can. They, you know, they, they hire me so that they go. Hey, he he can he can pull this off. <laughs> because in the end, in the end, Prairie, even if you play a bad guy, even if you play the worst monster on the planet, you have to find a way to not judge them because no bad person thinks they're bad unless they're a sociopath, you know, uh, and they know they're bad, but they just don't care. Mm. You know, I don't, I don't think a bully goes, I'm a really bad person. I think they're just, you know, they're acting in in their self-interest. And I think a lot of times that's all we do is we act in our self-interest. And I believe you're coming up next in Wrath of Man, directed by Guy Ritchie. What's it like being directed by Guy Ritchie as opposed to, say, Clint Eastwood? <laughs> oh, God, you picked literally the <laughs> diametrically opposed. Uh, um, when you get a, a Clint Eastwood script, first of all, you, you, you fall down crying <laughs> and you can't believe it. Uh, and when you show up on set, not a word will change. Not a scene will change. The pages that you get will never have an asterisk or a color change. And when you show up, it is completely quiet. No one has any uh, squawking mics uh, or, you know, um, loud noises or anything like that. And it is such a beautiful, almost like a garden. You're walking into like a museum garden and you walk around and he's very, just so beautifully eloquent and sweet and kind. And, you know, you do your take and he says, okay, move on and let's just keep moving. And it's very quick. On a Guy Ritchie movie, you you get your script, and when you show up, you, you there were any changes, and when you show up that morning, you say, hold on, guys rewriting the entire day. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're handed hot off the presses your script, and then you start acting, and then he basically comes out of his trailer and says, right, right, I didn't like any of that, none of that works, so we're going to change it again. Um, <laughs> and he kind of barks at you never bad but just kind of barks at you and and you and it's kind of a, a it's kind of chaos and it's kind of yeah. controlled chaos in a war zone and and but when you when you nail it he couldn't be happier and he jumps up and down like a kid and runs off and we start again the next day so and i think we have time for one more question why should people see let him go well i think it's a beautiful film i think tom bazooka did an amazing job in adapting the book um, I think the period that uh, might fall through the cracks in the early 60s, and I think because it was a big, I think there was a big transition in our country. And I think what you said earlier, I, I think that this film is a really nuanced portrayal of possessiveness and and control, and 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 how the dangers, the dangers of controlling family members to be like you, and they can't be themselves, and. And go off in the world and learn. I think it's a, it's an incredible story, and I think Diane and and Kevin and Leslie are just brilliant in it, mm-hmm. and just go for those performances alone. And and the fun part about the DVD release is, is that you get these behind the scenes making of stuff where you get to see Kevin and Diane and Leslie and the rest of the cast with our guards down talking and and seeing what a movie is kind of made made and how it's made. Okay, well, thank you so much, Jeffrey Donovan, for calling into our show. Oh, my pleasure, Prairie. Thank you. Okay, bye. Bye Bye-bye. And Let Him Go is currently in virtual cinemas online from Focus Features. And next up in the Arts Express screening room, The Case of Chester Himes, 
how the 20th century simultaneously celebrated and controversial African-American author not only influenced the black detective novel and reimagined the genre, but had an impact on the perception of black themes in literature and on screen as well. While moving into the black exploitation era and shaking up the way African Americans are portrayed on screen, prevailing beyond victimhood, beginning with Heim's incarceration as a youth, where his creative inspiration as a writer first flourished. I have almost completely forgotten prison, what it was like, and what I was like while there. The only impression it left absolutely and irrevocably is that human beings, <laughs> all human beings of whatever race or nationality or religious beliefs or ideology will do anything and everything. And I think it has partly convinced me, <laughs> at least I've tried to convince myself, that it has convinced me that I could never be hurt as much as I have already been hurt. Chester Himes. That summer in 1927, he is uncertain about his future when he meets a group of men. They convince Chester to join their crime operation, and soon he's not only gambling and bootlegging liquor, but tangled in a theft ring. After numerous robberies, Chester is arrested in a robbery with a gun. In 1928, Himes receives a 20 to 25 year term in the Ohio State Penitentiary for armed robbery. The 19 year old controls the prison's lucrative gambling operation and in his free time writes to keep from being bored. He decides to make writing his career. The next year, he starts sending short stories to various publications in hopes of reaching his goal. His dream almost dies April 20, 1930, when he barely escapes death in a prison fire that kills more than 300 inmates. Eventually, several major African-American newspapers print some of Himes' stories on prison life and social conditions. Then, in 1934, a story appears in the national magazine, Esquire. Esquire publishes six more of his stories while he is in prison. After almost eight years, he is paroled in May 1936. The next summer, Himes marries and works odd jobs to earn a living. He's hired by the Works Progress Administration digging ditches. Later, Himes works in a writing position for the WPA. After it closes in 1943, Himes can't find a job in private industry and blames racism. Later in 1943, Himes travels to Los Angeles alone. Before leaving, nationally known poet Langston Hughes gives him a list of people to talk with about screenwriting. After several months, Himes finds that like most African-Americans, he can only find jobs doing manual labor for low pay. Over the next three years, he has 23 of these jobs, and these difficult times inspire him to write a novel. When he receives a fellowship award in 1944, it gives him the break he needs to finish his novel. Later that year, Himes heads back to New York when his book, If He Hollers, Let Him Go, is set for release. Not even major news coverage can get the public interested, and the book sales are lower than anticipated. He was a writer, so he, he had cr creativity, he had talent, but he couldn't harness that talent and, and direct it into uh, mainstream America. He blamed mainstream America for not, not allowing him to develop his talent as he wanted to, he blamed racism on the problems he was having, and he wrote about victims. To work on the next project, he and his wife travel by car to Northern California. On the way, they are shocked by reports of Ku Klux Klan violence. They are disturbed even more after hotels and restaurants refuse to serve them. They depend on a loaded rifle for protection. 
Times' new novel focuses on an educated African-American man in Los Angeles during the 1940s who faces heavy discrimination in looking for a job. When he finds one as a union organizer, he gets tangled in a nasty labor battle. After three years, Himes completes Lonely Crusade and returns to New York for its release. The story gets streams of negative publicity in the media and sales are low. At this point, Himes is disgusted with the U.S. and thinks about leaving, like many African Americans. The message that he was trying to get across to the black community and to uh, the white community at large wasn't being uh, embraced as he thought it should have been. And I think that confused him a lot and disillusioned him with the American scene, with the American agenda. And the only thing that he could latch on to was that he was a good writer, and he knew it. He believed in himself as a writer. He couldn't do anything else he could write. Along with this sudden breakthrough, he learns that French critics have picked his novel, Lonely Crusade, as one of the top five American books published in France for 1952. These new events and talks with popular African-American novelist Richard Wright, now living in Paris, convince Himes to move. The attacks and disappointments have left their wounds. In April 1953, Himes boards an ocean liner for France. He had to get out of America, as many writers did, and sort of make a, a name for himself elsewhere, out, outside of America, where he was accepted by um, people in Paris, uh, Frenchmen, uh, Europeans uh, basically accepted his writing. In July 1954, his manuscript, The End of a Primitive, is rejected. The publisher, based out of New York, prefers a series of Himes short stories, but Himes throws the stories in the ocean. Then, within months, his fictional tale, The End of a Primitive, is bought by an American publisher. For a while, Himes is a minor celebrity among artists. I had the creative urge. But the old used forms for black American writers did not fit my creations. I wanted to break through the barrier that labeled me as a protest writer. I knew the life of an American black needed another image than just the victim of racism. We were more than just victims. We did not suffer. We were extroverts. We were unique individuals. Funny but not clowns, solemn, but not serious, hurt, but not suffering. We had a tremendous love of life. In 1955, on his way to see a French publisher with a manuscript, Himes runs into his French translator of If He Hollers, Let Him Go. The translator also publishes detective stories and tells Himes that his writing style would be excellent for a detective series. Himes is not interested at first, but changes his mind after being offered a $1,000 advance. Over the next two years, Himes works on a detective story. In 1958, The Five-Cornered Square is named the best detective novel in France. Himes signs a contract for eight more. By September, Himes is widely known throughout France. In the U.S., he is still being ridiculed. The New York Times writes, Himes is a small man with a little mustache and a big dog who's written unsuccessful books. This controversy disturbs him enormously. He confides to close friend and writer Carl Van Vechten, I dread reading any reference to me in the American press. There seems to be so much calculated ill will that leaves me depressed. His detective stories become popular in the U.S. Publishers are capitalizing on his popularity by selling the books without paying him royalties. By 1960, Heinz's career is on the rise and he is being contacted about new projects. The same year, his agent arranges a meeting with renowned painter Pablo Picasso. Picasso is interested in drawing a comic strip about Heinz's story, The Five-Cornered Square. Himes is also hired to write a screenplay about African-American culture in Harlem. When I wrote the last line, I began crying, and I couldn't stop. 
It was the saddest play ever written. His belief is that life for African Americans in Harlem is awful, but the play is never produced and the Picasso project falls through. Himes sifts through more offers and decides to accept an offer to produce a documentary about Harlem life for a French television station. His program covers the stirring message on race pride of African-American leader Malcolm X. The production also includes locations that convey this lifestyle of African-Americans. When Himes attends the documentary screening in Paris, his excitement turns to anger when he sees that the film editors have distorted his work. Himes retreats to southern France as plans are made by a French publisher to release a book he's worked on for a long period. Cotton comes to Harlem. In July of 1964, the French edition of Cotton Comes to Harlem reaches stores. It's a hit in France and the U.S. too. In 1966, Hollywood filmmaker Samuel Golden Jr. contacts Himes to discuss a movie deal. Four years later, Golden Studio releases a film based on Cotton Comes to Harlem. The movie is a success and Himes is showered with praise in the French, German, and American press. Over the next eight years, Himes writes several more articles and books. His autobiography, The Quality of Hurt, is released in 1972. The next year, Himes' last two fiction writings are published. In 1974, Goldwyn releases a film based on Himes' story, The Heat Is On. It's a big success. Two years later, the second volume of his autobiography, My Life of Absurdity, is published. Then, in 1978, a small journal prints Himes' last short story. During this period, he is battling a degenerative disease. On November 12, 1984, at the age of 75, Himes dies of Parkinson's at his home in Spain. what you just heard were selections from the project of Absolute History, courtesy of Little Dot Studios Network. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station. Wake up all the builders, time to build a new land. I know we could do it if we all lend a hand. The only thing we have to do is put it in our minds. Surely things will work out, they do it every time. The world won't get no better if we're just Change it now, just you and me.